Welcome to the Business of Design podcast. I'm Cheryl Horn, Director of Operations for Business of Design. A lot has changed at Business of Design since this episode originally aired. For the latest information and rates on events and membership at Business of Design, head to businessofdesign.com. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. I hope you're having a great week. It has been crazy busy in our office. I'm not sure I like that, given the nice weather we're having outside, but there you go. The other day, I happened to run into another designer who was very gently kind of complaining that she often finds her clients don't see her value. So in episode 21, I want to talk a little bit about that designer-client relationship and specifically how doggone difficult our jobs are in case you forget and think maybe it's just you. It's not. Episode 21, 12 Steps to a Custom Pillow and Why Your Job is So Doggone Difficult. Welcome to the Business of Design podcast with Kimberly Selden, brought to you by Business of Design, a coaching community for independent designers like you. We all know design matters. At Business of Design, we think designers matter too. If you're listening in from Toronto or the surrounding area, Kimberly will be appearing at SOFA in Mississauga on Thursday, August 17th from 10 to 11 a.m. This is a CEU accredited course and complete details are on our website at businessofdesign.com backslash events. Thank you so much to Kravit Inc., Kravit Fabrics. You know, they've been around since 1918, and they are a fifth-generation family-run business. That probably explains why their customer service is so good. Of course, I rely on them as my go-to resource for fabric and wall coverings and trimmings, and now even carpet and furniture, thanks to Kravit Curated. I find they really understand the pressures of my business. Their customer service is excellent. They have a vast variety of fabrics to choose from. And frankly, I love doing business with them. Thank you so much, Kravit Inc., for sponsoring our Business of Design podcast. And now, on to the show. Years ago, I wrote this column for Style at Home magazine. I was the design editor for 18 years, and it was quite a learning opportunity, I must say. I learned a lot about how to style for photography, and that's a real discipline, and you can tell a big difference between photos that are styled and those that aren't. I also learned how to pitch. You know, so often we would get these pitch proposals from designers, and they may have been very talented, but the proposals were not in any kind of shape to go in front of the editor and make a decision. So we'll definitely do a podcast, uh, more than one probably, on how to get published and what should be in a pitch proposal, et cetera. But I wrote this one column about the designer-client relationship years ago, and I actually intended it to be helpful to clients. I thought people would read the column, and then I would educate the consumer, and they would be calling me, and we'd have a much better time working together. Well, in fact, who really loved the column were the interior design professionals themselves. And 
And in fact, this is the most uh, demanded column I've ever written. Uh, and it's a lot of fun. And I thought I would share it with you as well. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the designer-client relationship. I recently ran into a woman, and this is what made me think of it. And she was just sort of dejected and said she's having some trouble because she keeps meeting clients who don't value what she does. They sort of undermine her and patronize her and talk to her like she's, you know, a someone who goes shopping for fun and sort of dabbles in a profession. And we all know what that feels like. It's pretty lousy. I had a, a similar experience recently with a project where I'm the interior designer and we've got some, the clients have hired another builder. And he was so condescending and so patronizing. It took all of my strength and grace to be nice and not uh, rip his head off when the clients weren't looking. But anyway, so we've all been there. I'm going to talk a little bit about the designer-client relationship, uh, and then I will get to 12 steps to a custom pillow. And if you think our job is easy after you hear these 12 steps, uh, then I hope that will help you reevaluate. It's not you. You're not dumb. You're not lazy. Uh, you're not born missing the gene that it takes to run a successful interior design business. It's really hard, complicated, complex work. So hang in there. So this article, the designer-client relationship, had to do, uh, first of all, with design etiquette. I called it. The um, etiquette that it takes to preserve the interior design-client relationship. And the clients meet you, and they're really excited about passing their vision on to you. And they have a lot of high expectations and hopes. And of course, you want to make them happy. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, flipping through magazines and finding beautiful pictures is really easy. Making that realization come to fruition is very difficult. Uh, decorating a home is demanding. It's time consuming. It's emotionally exhausting. It's physically exhausting sometimes too, right? And it's a complicated, complex process, as I've said. So clients do want to surround themselves with a professional team. That's the best way to ensure the project is going to turn out the way that they envision it. And to honor that goal, I guess, let's talk a little bit about design kit. First of all, you can't do this job alone. Whether you're the client who can't do it alone because you need a contractor, you need the designer, you need someone to hang the wallpaper, or you're the interior design professional, you also can't do it alone. You need all those same people. Now, recently we were hired on a project. Sorry, it wasn't recently. What am I, you know, my days are blending together here. I'm going to say it's about 10 years ago now. We were hired on a project. And when we got there, one of the home's four bedrooms had no windows, and the only way to get to the ensuite was through the closet. I kid you not. Now, that is not a typical experience of working with other professionals. And you might be thinking, oh, well, sometimes when you renovate houses, weird stuff like that happens. This was a new build, right? So, eek, somebody dropped the ball. Um, it's not typical of my experience of working with other professionals, as I said. So, the client, of course, was surprised that I said, wow, this seems like a huge error in judgment because it was just her son's bedroom. She said he didn't mind going through his closet, et cetera. I said, have you, have you seen a 10-year-old kid's closet? Do you have any idea what kind of 
piles lurk in the way in the middle of the night that could cause someone to trip. And of course, their feet get big and those size 10 shoes are in the middle of the pathway to the bathroom. Anyway, it took some convincing, but we finally did convince them that the design needed to be rethought out and every room in a new build deserved to have a a window. Yeah, a window. And I guess the point I'm trying to make is if it's a whole team and everybody's on the same page, everybody wins, which is why I'm such a proponent of bringing your own tradespeople to the game. Let them uh, do their best work, make you look good, uh, and they'll have your back and you'll have their back. And ultimately, I think the client benefits from that as well. For this relationship to succeed, everybody has to be clear about their expectations, right? The clients want to talk about the budget and what their desired timeline is, and they want a clear description of likes and dislikes at the outset of the project. And then, of course, they're going to need your help to determine whether or not that budget is reasonable. If they have $10,000 to spend and they want to do a new kitchen, a new bathroom, and new bedrooms, the answer is absolutely no. And in that case, then I would recommend them tackling one room and getting it exactly right for that amount of money, rather than taking that $10,000 and sprinkling it all over the house and really not get the benefit of anything being done. Designers, by the way, are not paid for their time. That's what a lot of people think. Time is invaluable. It's a a resource that's limited. We don't want to get paid for that. We get paid for our expertise. We just happen to use time as a reference, as a way of quantifying the amount of expertise we're providing to clients on a job. Many firms, like my firm, will charge a range of fees depending on expertise and experience. So in my office, I'm the principal. I'm $325 an hour. My seniors are $195 an hour. Intermediates are $145 an hour. Juniors are $115 an hour. And then we have an administrative fee for bookkeeping, et cetera, that's $75 an hour. Now, for those of you who have just heard your fee go by, but assigned to a junior designer or an administrator, I hope you're thinking, whoa, wait, what? (laughs) Because chances are it is time to raise your fees. And I recently was coaching someone, I, I do some private coaching as well. And she was sort of pining for a bookkeeper, but said she couldn't afford it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Not only can you afford it, you can actually make money by working with this professional because you can pay that bookkeeper $30, $40 an hour, whatever they need. And then you can bill that bookkeeper out at $75 an hour, $100 an hour, $110 an hour, depending on their level of expertise. Now, a good bookkeeper, of course, is going to be able to keep track of the mounds of paperwork that go through your office. They're going to eliminate mistakes, which cost you money and cost clients money, and they're going to be able to do that work so much faster than you can. So if you're also like my uh, mentee, uh, thinking that you can't afford it, I'm telling you, you can afford it, and you can't afford not to do this for yourself. That's a really easy job to outsource. 
in any relationship, if you want it to be successful, you have to build trust. And this is something that kind of I hear from time to time. I'll hear a designer and and they'll say, you know, I don't have a contract because my clients are so good and I trust them. Uh, The fact of the matter is trust is not something you give people you don't know. Think of your children. Could you imagine saying to your children, now you go out into the world and I want you to trust every single person you meet? Absolutely not. Trust is something that is earned. It's something that's built over time. Now, as a designer, you're going to earn your client's trust by being your word, by showing up on time, by doing what you said you're going to do, by having trades who do quality work, uh, by constantly displaying integrity. That's going to build trust with your clients. And that's why so often when you hear mature designers, and I don't mean mature in age, I mean they are running a mature business, you hear them say, oh my gosh, it's a repeat customer. And she said, just do whatever you want. Like that's a dream for me when clients do that. It's my second and third time working with them. They say, Kimberly, you know what? Just do it. You're going to just just do it. It's great. Here's a check. Bye. That's awesome. And that means that I've built up a lot of trust in the trust bank. Now, clients have to build trust with designers as well. And how do clients build trust? Well, they show up for meetings on time. They pay their bills on time. They are reasonable when things go wrong. They have a way of uh, discussing issues that doesn't uh, throw blame on anybody. So that's the way clients build trust. And if both of you are attempting to be mature in your relationship, then what you're going to find is that trust is going to grow over time and you're going to have a much more successful, happy relationship working with each other. Trust, by the way, is also fostered through your contract. If your contract is clear, it really outlines the many things that can and do go wrong on projects and describes in detail how you're going to handle those things. Clients can relax and they can trust that. Your contract should not only outline your billing policies and structures, but your trade policies, your supplier policies. What happens when there's an error or deficiency? What about guarantees? What about returns? What about disputes? How do you resolve those? If all of those things are spelled out at the beginning, yes, when something goes wrong, you may have to go back to the contract and remind the client that you thought of this in advance because you've been doing this a while, uh, and here are the rules for how we're going to get through this, but at least you'll have that there. And again, that's a way to show clients that, you know what, I've got skin in the game. I've been doing this a while. I've thought of all of these things, or I've experienced these things, and I'm going to manage this issue for you, and we're going to make it right. While designers do have to use uh, some psychology to be successful, we're not marriage counselors, of course, and sometimes there are disagreements between two partners. You know, she wants wood floors and he wants stone, and suddenly two pairs of eyes are fixated on you and you're supposed to solve this, and you're, if you're like me, you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know who I should side with. Even though I have a very strong opinion, I know which one is right or which one I think is right. I do not want either of my clients to be unhappy. So I've learned some skills for cultivating cooperation and collaboration. And when you're really at an impasse, one of the things that I think can be very helpful is I I actually assign homework and I make 
both the partners uh, go and find pictures that they love. And then we'll sit together and analyze those photos. And while they may be very different, you know, he likes modern and he likes traditional, uh, the fact of the matter is there are some things that are common denominators. There's mo- maybe both of them like dark wood. Maybe both of them love tall chairs with wingbacks. Uh, so by focusing on the things that they have in common, that can buy you a lot of credit in the trust bank. So when it's time to make a decision that's going to make one of them a little bit more unhappy uh, then you're going to be able to deliver that decision uh, and deliver your logic for making that choice. We also, by the way, walk a tightrope uh, between our clients' needs and the limitations of ordinary people, otherwise known as your trades and suppliers, right? Ordinary people make human errors sometimes. And so we're constantly needing to remind our clients that while we do our best to catch all the errors before they happen, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of people who are going to be involved in a project. And along that route, uh, there are going to be some errors that we're not going to be able to catch in advance. But we will resolve those things. And I think uh, discussing the 12 steps to a custom pillow really highlights highlights how uh, complicated, how complex uh, every single task is on a design uh, project or a design build project. So let's run through the 12 steps of a very simple custom pillow. Step one, this is easy. You're going to select fabric. And I'm going to go to Kravit. And, you know, full disclosure, yes, Kravit is the sponsor of the podcast, but I am a good customer at Kravit. And I will go there and I will flip through their racks of fabric. And I get the benefit of them having spent money on research and development with a whole bunch of other designers to bring the best patterns, the most interesting color combinations to life. So I go there. I have my mind wide open. I know I'm looking for a fabric for one pillow and I finally find something I love. Now, is it chenille? Is it velvet? Is it linen? I have to think back. Well, it's a client mentioned that she's a woman of a certain age and she's starting to have hot flashes. I think velvet's going to be uncomfortable for her. I think linen is the way to go. Or did he mention that he can't stand wrinkles on things? He's a very type A and wants everything perfect. Linen's going to be a nightmare, so I'm not going to do that. Haven't even gotten into colors. I mean, is this going to be gray and white, like 90% of the decisions that we've made in the past uh, 10 years on projects? Or are they going to want some more color, some red, some blue, maybe some lime green? What about pattern? Is it a traditional pattern? Is it a modern pattern? Is it an ICAT fabric? Is it a paisley fabric? Is it stripes? Are they horizontal? Are they vertical? This is step one, people, and this is just one pillow. We all know that there's a lot of things we do that are way more complicated than a single pillow. So that's step one, just choosing the fabric. Step two, we're going to select the trim or we're going to say no trim. That's a choice too. A lot of things are happening now without any piping at all. It looks very modern and very sleek. Hey, wait a minute. They're traditional. I think they'd like a little cord. Oh, I'm sick of cord. That's a little dated. How about a flat 
braid. Maybe I could do a little grow grain that just peeks out around the lip of the edge of the pillow. That would be really sexy and I could do a nice contrasting color with that grow grain ribbon. Or I'm going to do a flat braid that's got a pattern on it and I'm going to put it right on the face of the pillow. Maybe I'll put it in a square and the edges are mitered. Or perhaps it's going to go horizontally or vertically through the pillow in the center of the pillow. So many decisions when it comes to trim, not only what kind of trim, but how you're going to use it where it's going to be placed. Step three, we're going to determine the size of the pillow. Now, I don't know about you guys, but our pillows were always 18 inches until about, you know, eight or nine years ago, and suddenly they were 20 inches. And now 18 inches look way too small to us. So our pillows are 20 inches. Recently, we did some that were 22 because the sofa had a super high back. And they're not always square, right? Sometimes they're kidney pillows. And I have a real pet peeve. I hate tiny little kidney pillows. So we tend to make our kidney pillows pretty big, often 14 by 18. Uh, And those tend to look really good on big, comfortable armchairs. So now we've got the fabric, we've got the trim, and we've got to decide on the size of the pillow and the shape of the pillow, right? That's step three. Step four, we're going to choose the filling. I love pillows that have down in them. I think it's beautiful, but maybe somebody's got an allergy, so we have to come up with an alternative. Or maybe it's a bolster and it needs to be a little bit harder, so it's going to be a sandwich. Or maybe the fabric is so loose that the uh, pillow maker said we better choose uh, you know, a foam or else the pillow's going to lose all its shape. So there's another round of decisions we have to make for our pillow. Now it's time to think about the edge detail. Is it going to be a knife edge? Is it going to be a box cushion? Is it going to have Turkish corners? Uh, We talked a little bit about trim, but now we think, oh, wow, with Turkish corners, wouldn't it look great if we did a terrific cord or something like that? So that edge detail was step five. Step six, in our office, what happens next is we will produce quote requests. Now that sounds easy enough. Sure, a quote request for the pillow. But the quote request actually has to go to the fabric supplier for each of the fabrics, has to go to the trim supplier, and then has to go to the pillow workroom. In our case, we purchase the inserts for the pillow from the person who makes the pillow. So that's one. So it can be three or even four if, for example, you have a different fabric on the back of the pillow, three or four quote requests that go out in order for us to price that pillow. Now I'm going to skip the part uh, where we show it to the client and they approve it. And I'm going to go right to what happens next. And that is before we create that purchase order, we have to order CFAs, cutting for approval. We want to ensure that the fabric looks exactly like the sample. And 90% of the time it does. It's accurate. However, about 10% of the time, this sample just doesn't look like Uh, or the CFA rather just doesn't look like the sample we have in our hands. Sometimes it doesn't matter at all. You know, it's one beige or another beige, but other times it's a very specific color, you know, kind of a mouse's back you're going for. And suddenly the sample that you received, uh, the CFA, looks a little bit more purple. And that just won't do because your client hates purple. So it is important for you to request and review those CFAs. It also happens that we make a mistake. Uh, We write the wrong number down, and so the CFA comes, and it's a totally different fabric, and thank goodness we ordered it, or we'd have 82 yards of a purple ICAT that we have nothing to do with. Uh, So very important step, by the way. 
Uh, step number eight, we've uh, created the purchase order and now we are going to receive the fabrics, the trims, the forms, and we have to determine that everything is accurate. Now, it's funny, I hear this a lot from people, why don't you just send all the fabric straight to the workroom? Well, we do want to double check that it's the correct fabric, and we learned years ago that there are some projects, in fact, I'm doing one now, where we are on pillow DD. We have learned to label the pillows so our workroom can keep them straight. There's pillow A, pillow B, pillow C, pillow D, that's right, and we have one project right now where we have a pillow pillow AA, pillow BB, pillow CC, and pillow DD. So all of those fabrics and trims need to be packaged and labeled and get to the workroom in a tidy bundle, or there's a really good chance something's going to go wrong. Step nine, you want to verify that the workroom has received everything, uh, that there are no questions, and you're going to also uh, verify that the timing is good, and you're going to make a note of that in your tracking form probably. Step 10 is a lot of fun because the workroom is finished and the pillow is produced and you get to take a look at it and you're looking to make sure it's the correct fabric, it's the correct trim, it's the correct size. It's made exactly to the specifications that you asked for. Now, episode 19, I interviewed uh, Luann Nagara and uh, she was really singing my language, I'll tell you, because she talked about the fact that if you're loosey-goosey on those details at the beginning, you better be prepared to accept loosey-goosey as a finished product. And I know for sure I'm not. So it takes real discipline for me to slow down and make sure I have all of those details correct before the workroom gets the order. And I'm really, you know, lucky or I've worked hard. And so I'm getting the benefit of having other people work with me who very often do that paperwork. But from time to time, I will chip in and I will jump on the the uh, factory line and I will do quote requests and I will do purchase orders. And it reminds me of how freaking complex this job is. So step 10, you're going to make sure that pillow is just perfect. Step 11, you're going to get that pillow to the client's house. Now, if you do a turnkey procedure like we do, it's going to arrive on the same day as most of the other things. Uh, some of you like to get things to clients one at a time. I strongly urge you to to avoid doing that. In my experience, when I used to do that, the clients would pick and pick and pick at the items that arrived one at a time. And there were too many midnight calls uh, panicking that, oh my gosh, the sofa's here and there's no way the chairs are going to fit. It's going to be too crowded. And of course, I would go running over to assure them that everything was going to be fine and my little heart is beating out of my chest because really, it does look like it's pretty tight. And then when every Everything is delivered. It looks great. So I realize that's a lot of drama I don't need in my life, and I could avoid all that drama by having a turnkey approach to design and not delivering things one thing at a time. Step 12 is that moment where you receive the pillow at the client's house. And again, because it's turnkey, we're the ones receiving the pillow. I'm not asking my client to receive that pillow. 
open it up, verify that it's correct, and put it where it goes. I would much rather be the person who does all of those steps. Now, a pillow is a tiny little thing, but imagine if it's a huge chair and a lot of packaging, and you're just dropping it off at your client's house. They may think it's fun, but they're also going to think it's pretty darn annoying to have to unwrap it and deal with all that packaging and get it positioned in the living room where it's supposed to go. So don't wear your clients out with steps like that. Uh, the fact of the matter is it's quite profitable for us to manage all of those details on behalf of clients, and we're doing them a wonderful service. So step 12, you're receiving that pillow at your clients on the job site. And there you have it, 12 steps of a little tiny pillow. Now multiply all of those organizational tasks exponentially for more complex items such as just about anything. And it's clear that this job is going to be time-consuming, detail-oriented, and frankly, just a lot of work. Now, I'm not asking you all to feel sorry for me because I work so hard, and I don't feel sorry for you because you work so hard. I think we're all here because we want to be. I know for me, and I've heard from so many of you, like it's like heaven when a client tells me they love what I did. It's just like all those feels all over me coursing through my body. I just can't get enough of it, which is why I can't imagine ever retiring. Who'd want to give up all that good stuff? But the fact of the matter is we do want to honor the value we bring to the project. Yes, we can choose beautiful fra- fabrics, and that's a wonderful part of what we do. There's no question. But all of that project management that happens afterwards, of course, is really important as well. And it's also important for us to keep our perspective and keep a sense of humor because along the way, in any one of those 12 steps, there are a hundred things that can go wrong. I've done a lot of stupid things myself. My trades have let me down. My suppliers have disappointed me. And when you have great relationships, You can shake your head and laugh, start over, reset, keep going, uh, and realize that we're all human beings and we all benefit from helping each other along the way. Early in my career, um, this young couple, I will never forget them because she was the first person I ever saw who had the big lips and they were huge. Like she just got them, they were enormous, these lips. And I was just, I could barely talk to her without being fixated on her lips. I remember her to this day, but uh, we had installed new marble floors. That was all the rage. It was 1992 or 1993. So there were marble floors in their huge home and they had been laid by hand lovingly by this Italian guy who was a master. And they were absolutely beautiful. And then I got a phone call uh, and the clients were quite distraught and I needed to come over right away because there was something wrong with the floors. So when I got there, I'm looking at the floors. They look beautiful. I can't figure it out. And they're trying to explain to me that the grout isn't right. It isn't even. It isn't perfect. And I said, I, I, I really don't understand what you mean. So the husband went into his study, came out with a magnifying glass and asked me to crouch down on my knees and look at the floor through the magnifying glass, which I did. I was young. I thought this is 
how you do things. So there I am down on my hands and knees looking at the floor and I can see that, yeah, what they're talking about, some of the grout lines were a teeny bit thicker than the other ones. There was a little bit of a chip on one stone and so there was a little bit more grout there, but we're talking about really minuscule differences. And you know, the clients were quite obsessed about this and didn't think it was perfect. And I didn't at that time have the vocabulary I do today or the confidence to handle that situation. So I asked them to please let me go away and think about it. And I would talk to my Tyler. And when I phoned my Tyler, he was so kind and so sweet with me. And he said, if they want perfect, they should get linoleum because that's extruded from a machine. This is stone that grows in the earth, and it's chipped, and it's polished by hand, and then it's laid by hand, and he's on his hands and knees doing backbreaking work, uh, very fine, beautiful craftsmanship, and that there's all of that leads to a product that's far superior to something that's extruded from a machine. So he gave me the language I needed to talk to my clients and educate my clients. And we had a good laugh about it. And I added that I didn't think uh, sitting on the floor was the best way to enjoy their marble floors. Perhaps if they would look at it from a standing position, they're going to be happier with it in the long run. So we had a good laugh and we survived. But that's the kind of stuff we deal with sometimes, right? I remember one designer telling me they had a sofa delivered and the client dropped something and looked underneath the sofa and saw that there was the fabric that was on the sofa wasn't underneath the sofa. So kind of freaked out, like she had skimped on her. So, you know, she explained, no, we, we don't put Put the $250 a yard fabric underneath the sofa. It's a bit of a waste. Uh, we could, if you want us to add it, it'll be another $800 or whatever it was. And then the client said, oh, okay, I get it. So I guess my point is this, if you're new and you're being hit with some things that you don't have a comeback for, you don't have the vocabulary for just yet, the best thing you can do is tell your clients, I appreciate what you're saying to me. I hear everything you said. Repeat it back to them and say, now give me a day or so to, to give this some consideration because I want to be very respectful and answer your question thoroughly. And get yourself out of there and phone me and I'll help you. <laughs> or get yourself to your ASID meeting and ask one of your best friends at the meeting to help you. We don't have to do this alone. Thank goodness we have each other. I hope you're all busy as heck. Uh, I'm busy, as I said, but wouldn't mind a little less busy the rest of the summer. So I'm going to try to uh, make that happen for myself. By the way, if you'd like a copy of these 12 steps, you may want to produce it into a gorgeous document with your own logo on it. That's fine with me. You'll find them at businessofdesign.com under the course titled Mistakes Happen. And we're going to talk more about mistakes in the next few weeks in another podcast. We so appreciate you being here for the podcasts. You could help us out a lot if you go onto iTunes or SoundCloud and give us a like. Uh, we love the testimonials. They mean a lot to us. And you guys are starting to send us some really good ideas for the podcast. So we appreciate that as well. If you think you've got a topic that needs to be talked about and you'd like to be a guest, you know where to find us, businessofdesign.com. And we would love to have you on the show. Thanks so much for being here, everyone. Have a great week ahead.